0: Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and you are good. Father, you've given us your word. You've revealed yourself to us. Father, these words were written to a church called Colossae or the church in Colossae. Father, but we understand that these words have great application and great meaning for us today. Even as three separate churches, local churches, in the same place, worshiping the same God. This word is application to all of us. So Father, I just pray as we work through this text, uh, that you would be glorified, that you would reveal yourself to each one of us more clearly than you were revealed to us when we walked in this door. And Father, I pray that um, it would not be me speaking, but it would be your words. Um, and Father, that we would just unite around the text and what you want to say to us today. And Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, for those of you who don't know, that was Edmond Jean, uh, who was our translator while we were in Haiti. Um, he is an awesome man of God that we got to spend lots of days with. Um, this man has a heart for Haitians. He is a Haitian. Um, But he lives in the Dominican Republic, has lived there for about 20 years, Um, but has felt God's call in his life to go back to Haiti. Um, He is doing some school, like for those who can't afford to go to school, and doing some uh, uh, orphanage work or beginning to do some of that. But primarily, uh, one of the biggest things that Edmond Jean does is work with Haiti Love, uh, which is the organization that we worked with in Haiti. Uh, and other local churches, and us to help strengthen the local church in the Dominican and in Haiti. Um, so we got the opportunity to, to get to know this man quite well. Uh, lots of intimate moments with Edmond Jean in places where we were very uncomfortable. Uh, one story I can tell you is, as we were going into Haiti... Um, it's not like crossing from here to Canada or here to Mexico. It's a little bit more intense than that. Um, just saying. Uh, so we're going in and, uh, we get into Haiti and the guy's getting ready to stamp our guide's passport. Uh, his name is Noah. Uh, he's from America and, and he get ready to stamp it. And the guy's saying, we can't, there's no place to stamp. Your passport is full. And so they kind of fussed back and forth, and finally the guy stamped it and said, um, I won't stamp it again. And he like writes a note on there saying to not stamp it again. Now this is our, our guide, Noah, getting us into Haiti, and he's saying, I'm not going to stamp it when you try to come back out, All right? So we go on in, and we get back on our way back out of Haiti, going back into the Dominican Republic, and Basically what happens is we give all of our passports to Edmond John, who knows how to work magic, uh, quite literally. So he goes in with our passports, and we're all kind of standing around. They have what's called a tap-tap, and that's basically, it's the back of a, of a pickup truck and not a Silverado, uh, like a Ford Ranger pickup truck, and you put like a lot of people in the back of that, so we're out there kind of chilling by the things, and all of a sudden we see Edmond John come running out of the building running and we're like and he's like let's go let's go like we get in and we take off across back to the Dominican Republic and later I went to Edmond and I said Edmond what happened <laughs> you know because it's not good to ask in that moment you just go you just listen and you go uh because we yeah we're white and we stand out no hiding um so we get over to the other side and a little bit later after things calm down I said, Edmond what happened He said, well, there was a lady there who was stamping passports. And when she got to Noah's, it was the last one she got to. I gave it to her last to make sure that she got through all the other passports just fine. She got to the last one. And the supervisor that had stamped his book and wrote in it was in a different room. And so she gets to that. She's getting ready to stamp it. And there's the note on there. She stamps it and says, you better get out of here quickly. When my supervisor, if he gets back before you leave, Noah will be stuck here. And we'd had to take in his passport. So that's why Edmond John come running out. And as and, and you see, he's no tiny guy. Uh, he's taking off and we go, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. And we made it safely and, and Noah uh, is getting a new passport uh, probably as we speak. Uh, no more trips back and forth. We'd had to go up the road maybe three miles and drop him off and let him cross over the river by himself or something. Uh, which would have been an adventure, yeah, so. All right, so anyways, that's the background on Edmond Jean, and as we asked him if he would go ahead and read the rest of Colossians for us, so that each week, as we finish preaching through Colossians, that we can be reminded of our brothers and sisters in Haiti. And um, so with that said, let's go to Colossians chapter three, verse 12, and let's read through that one more time very quickly here. Colossians three, verse 12. Paul says this, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness. I'm sorry, let's back up. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness. Wow, sorry, my brain is gone. Let's start over one more time. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to Him, thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's start off with this. I want to want us to think about the idea of Christian life and this word achievement. We live in a culture where the Christian has been affected by this idea of achievement. So our society thinks of life so much in the terms of achievement, and we do so as Christians as well. I want you to consider this question. How do you think about your Christian life? How would you rate your Christian life? Most of us, I'm willing to bet, find this a difficult question to answer. Why? Why? Most Christians, I think, most Christians have a deep sense of disappointment with themselves. Some Christians seem pretty pleased with themselves. But the next question is this, why do you think that you are not a very good Christian? And on the other hand, why are you so pleased with yourself as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus? My guess is this in most cases, how you think or how you answered that question is based upon the term achievement. What have I achieved? So the self-satisfied Christian thinks that he or she is doing well as where the downcast Christian thinks that he or she is not doing well. I'm not really a person who prays as seriously as I think I should. I do not read the Bible as consistently as I should. I do not behave in my family as unselfishly as I should. In my work, I am not a strong witness to Christ. There is that bad habit I just can't seem to overcome. I'm a very poor Christian does this seem familiar to anybody anybody am I the only one it's very difficult for us to see how we could think otherwise I mean what we do really does matter right I mean even in our church culture where we uh, are so bent on this idea of well once saved always saved And then we go through this life, and it doesn't really matter what we do, but it does matter what we do. Yes, we are saved, we are sealed, we're justified. It's not by works, it's by Christ, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But what we do matters. Paul tells us to work out our salvation. What we do matters. God does not take up residence in our heart to not produce anything godly. That's not the case. What company buys a warehouse to let it sit empty? They move in and begin to produce a product, and God does that in our lives as well. We're not factories that sit empty with no production. God takes residence and He produces in our lives. So Paul has called us to work out our salvation. The question is, though, is achievement thinking appropriate for Christians or not? And if it's not, is there an alternative? So when we ask the question, how are you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, how well are you doing? Is there any other way to think other than in terms of achievement? Because our society and our church culture is just consumed by the idea of achievement. Look what we've done. Or look what I've not done. I think Paul answers these questions in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, particularly these verses that we're going to look at. But the whole overall context here, we see that the center and power of the Christian life is Christ and our identification or our union with Him. So the center of the Christian life is based upon our union or identification with Jesus. And this is what Paul has been been. Teaching us here in Colossians. And here's the deal, if we do not get this identification in Christ down now, then the rest of what we're going to talk about really does not matter. If our identification is not found in Christ, then nothing else matters. But just a quick review, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says that we've been raised with Christ. In verse 3, he says we died with Christ. In verse 4, we will appear with Christ in glory. In 3 and 6, he says the Christian life is therefore a life of victory over the things that are bringing down God's wrath on the world. In verse 9, he says our belonging to Christ means that we have taken off the old humanity. He says we have put on a new humanity in verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. This also means that our behaviors, that there are certain behaviors that are to be done away with. And it also means that there are certain behaviors that are to be done as Christians. So as we jump into this text, so I want you to just kind of see there are kind of two distinct parts in verses 12 through 17. In the first part, Paul is really uh, addressing each one of us kind of as individuals. And in the second part, he jumps into more of a, a corporate address. How does this individual transformation that's taking place affect the body? How does it affect us as a local church, uh, as a local congregation? So with that, let's jump back to part one. It says, in this, if you have your notes, I want to encourage you to fill this in and take notes as we go. Says this, in Christ there is a new man. This is part one. In Christ there is a new man. Let's read verses 12 through 14. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As always, when we come to Paul's writings, I think it's important for us to to pay attention to Paul's logic. Uh, Paul is a very smart individual, and if we miss Paul's logic, we really miss the point of the text. So, the first thing Paul starts off with is, put on then... Um, then is almost always an incredibly important word. Here it indicates that this paragraph that we're working in today follows logically from what precedes it. Here it indicates that what Paul has just told us to put on and the identity change that has happened, that this is what follows the identity change. In particular, you can look maybe later this week at verse 9 and 10. In verses 1-4, through 4. we must learn, though, that what has happened to us and what will happen to us because of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, the you who died with Christ was the old self, and it, which has been put off. The old human nature was alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Do we realize that? Do you realize that? Our old self was hostile in mind, Paul tells us. Was doing evil deeds. And we were alienated from God. We were enemies of God. This is who Paul tells us we were. We were eager to live life without God and ungrateful to Him. All of us were there. And some may be still there. Enemies of God. He says, that you, that you who was an enemy of God has been put to death. That you who is an enemy of God has been judged, but not judged by your death, but judged by the death of Christ. Amen? Judged by the death of Christ. Therefore, the new man is the forgiven one who wants to live with God. This One has been made alive because Christ has been raised. So because of this death and this resurrection, Christ's death and resurrection and our death and resurrection with Christ, we have a new identity and this is foundational for us as we work through the rest of this text. We have a new identity. This is foundational. Before we can respond to the imperatives or to the commands that Paul gives in the rest of this passage, we must understand that this new identity has been given to us, not achieved by us. It's been given. You did not achieve this new identity by saying a prayer. You did not achieve this identity by walking an aisle. You did not achieve this identity by joining a church, by mommy and daddy who always went to church. You did not achieve this by being a good person. God has given this to you and to me. This identity that we have in Christ is extraordinary. And I think we miss the splendor of that truth. That our identity is no longer in ourselves and the things of this world. Our jobs, our kids even. Our identity is found in Christ. And I think we miss the extraordinary aspect of that. The words in verse 12. Are heavy, I think, with connotations as we work through these verses. These words, hear me, hear me, these words we're getting ready to look at describe the most privileged people on this planet. These words describe the most privileged people ever to walk this earth. And the moment we lose sight of that, we miss the glory of the gospel these words, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones. You did not achieve this, but God has chose you. He says, we are God's chosen ones. God is the owner of this whole world, right? Right. He is the maker of all people, yet among all the people, we are joined to Christ because he chose us. To choose some is to not choose others. God chose those whom He has saved. We are Christ's special possession. Do you see that? Do you believe that? We are Christ's chosen special possession. Next, He says in this verse that we are holy. We are holy why Because god is holy only what is holy can be accepted welcomed and embraced by god if we are accepted welcomed and embraced by god in our new it's because our new identity because we are joined with Christ and Christ is holy amen we don't have to be holy jesus is holy We would never have measured up. Next, he says that we are his beloved. You ever thought about what that means? And that's kind of a a churchy word, not churchy word, but a word that we kind of toss around all the time. What this literally means is having been loved. That's who we are as God's people, those who have been loved. And an ongoing love. We have had God's love lavished on us. Do you feel like the most privileged person on this earth because of what God has done? If not, you miss. You're missing something big. We are the most loved people on this earth. Those of us... Who are followers of Jesus. Think about real quickly what Paul as a good Jew would have known at this point when he wrote this. Deuteronomy 4:37 says and because he or God because God loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. He loved your fathers and he chose their offspring Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 through 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. It's not because of your, what? Your achievements that God has set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. That is us. We are chosen as His heritage. Wow. Our identity is greatly different in the gospel. We are not the same people that we were. Here is the glorious mystery that is now revealed. Christ, as He he is proclaimed now to all people, is the hope of glory. No longer is it just the Jews. But Paul says now, and Colossians says, now you... Have been united to Christ by faith and are God's chosen ones, holy, and you have been loved. Think about that. This is our identity, and it's not because of our achievements, it's because of God's achievement. So it's important that we understand before we move into the rest of this that our identity is not based upon our achievements. But it's based upon God and His achievement. And once again, just like in verse 3, one, if you go back and look at verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul sets the stage that who I'm talking to are those who are already saved. And then he gives these things that we should be doing and this character that should be happening. But all this should be happening because we have been saved. And if we don't get that from the very beginning, then we can begin to think that Paul is telling us to do all of these things in order to be saved. But Paul is saying, no, no, no. I'm speaking to those who are already been raised with Christ. And now what is going to proceed and the commands I'm going to give you are an outflowing that should come out of your relationship with Christ. Your new identity. So what we do as we work through the rest of this text flows out of who we are what we do does not make us right with god we are right with god because of christ but because of christ this is what we do our out of our new identity must flow a new character We are to dress in a way that fits our new identity. We are to put on new clothes. This is an image for the new character of those who are in Christ. This is the image that we should have. And I don't care whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or you've been a Christian for four weeks, none of us have arrived. We all still have greater clothes to put on. Paul says to put on clothes of compassion. We need to take on a heart like God's. Do you see the compassion in the cross? Do you see the compassion with the poor and the needy? Let me ask, do you have compassion for your neighbor who does not worship God, the God. Do you have compassion for that person? Kindness. Think of the kindness that God has shown you. Some of us don't show kindness because we don't understand the kindness that God has shown us. And I think that has a lot to do with we in some. Small amount it just creeps into our lives. We begin to think that somehow we are good people and we deserve what God has done for us. Self righteousness, it doesn't matter how long we've been a believer, it can creep in 20 years later. Well, I, I'm pretty good. And we begin to lose the, the sight of the fact that God has shown us kindness in the, in the cross, and He continues to show you kindness with every breath that you breathe. Humility, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility, meekness. This is the consideration of others before oneself. Put on gentleness like that of Jesus. Meekness, patience. You see where these things fly right in the face of our culture today. It is me, 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 my, my, my. It's all about me, what I want. Those are the old clothes. Those have been burned. Stop putting them back on. Put on the new clothes. When your life, hear me, when your life is not characterized by these things, then you are living as if your identity is in something other than Christ. That's diabolic. That is evil. We are living in ways that do not honor God. It is not the character of the new clothing that we have put on. We live as if Christ did not die on the cross, and our identity is found in something else. And I think this is part of the root of where a lot of us struggle with sin. So we, we talk, we've been talking a lot recently about when we go to take care of the sins in our life, we often approach it like we do when we cut grass. You have weeds that are standing out uh, that are taller than the rest of the, the good grass. And so what we do is we just cut that, and it looks pretty for a couple days. And then what happens is the weed, within a couple of days, the weeds are already taller than the rest of our grass. And that's what ha- most of us approach the sin in our life that Paul's telling us to put off. We approach it by, by trying to deal with the symptoms. Well, I'm just not going to do that anymore. I'm just, I'm just not going to look at women that way anymore. Or I'm just not going to talk to my husband that way anymore. And we don't deal with the root of the problem. And so the weeds keep coming back. So we call that behavioral management. where We just go after the behavior instead of after the heart. And one of the biggest heart problems that we have is that we're not, we don't find our identity in Christ. If our identity was found in Christ and we were reminded of that every day, then we understand that the clothes I'm putting on are because of the identity that I have in Christ. And not the identity that I'm finding in my job, in my selfishness, in my children, in the acts of service that I do. Our identity is in Christ. Those things flow out of it. And we have to get that right. But instead, when our identity is found in Christ, this is the character that flows out of it. This is the sketch of the new character that God's chosen, holy, loved people are to put on. So not only is there an unexpected character to be taken, there is also a conduct that must flow out of this character. So we have an identity, and then this is our character that flows out of this, and then out of our character and identity flows this conduct. So our new character necessitates new conduct. Just as character ought to be appropriate to identity, so there's conduct that ought to express character. Question, what kind of conduct can we expect from the most privileged class of people in the world? And I am not talking about United States privileged people. I'm talking about the people of God. What kind of conduct can we expect from those people? Paul says, verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. For our achievement-driven society and achievement-driven church culture, this is quite depressing. So you're telling me that the conduct that's supposed to come out of this great identity and this great new character, new clothes that we're putting on, is to be forgiving with each other. Yes. That's what Paul says. This is the conduct that flows out of this character, that flows out of this identity, and it's forgiveness. Do you think we live in a culture... Where forgiveness is hard to give. Marriages. Well, you know, he just does things that I don't like. Or that authority that I don't want to listen to. Did something wrong the other day. And I'm going to hold it against him so that I don't have to listen to what he says. It helps me justify my sin. I think forgiveness is hard in the church? Anybody? 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 Hey. Alright, I'm not the only sinner in here. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard with the people you love the most. They tend to hurt you the deepest. Paul tells us it's forgiveness. Why should we do this? (laughs) Why? Why is forgiveness one of the key components of the conduct that flows out of our out of this new character. Why? Because we have been forgiven the greatest debt on this earth. Huh. God forgave us. The most privileged people in the world. Verse 13. He says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. We Myself, we find it hard. I find it hard to forgive when I lose sight of how much I've been forgiven. And I usually lose sight of how much I've been forgiven when I begin to think too highly of myself. And I begin to think of my achievements and go, God, look at what I've done. We lose sight of how much we have been forgiven. Paul goes on in verse 14. Love is what binds the body together. He says, And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. No brilliant personality or extraordinary ability within the church binds it together. Love is what binds the church together. Forgiveness that is laced with love and founded on love is what binds us together. Don't... Don't go into this realm of this ambiguous love conquers all kind of thing that we have in our culture. This is a very real, practical thing. We, we just like to toss that cliche out there and then we don't actually do it. But love is poet Paul says is what binds us together. This love is foundationally tethered to our identity in Christ as he first loved us. And that's a key phrase, guys. God did not love us because we loved Him; He loved us first when we hated Him, when we were enemies of Him. So that's part one. Paul says this is our new identity in Christ. Outflows from that our character, and then from that flows this conduct. Now Paul is going to talk. How does this look like? In The church community. How does this flow? What does this feel like in the church? So in Christ, there is also a new identity, but there is also a new society. A new community. A new group of people. True of the universal church, practiced and lived out in the local church. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The first very important word there is the conjunction and. This word suggests that the following paragraph continues the subject that we've just been discussing. And that is the new life to be enjoyed by believers. Now the focus shifts, though, to believers corporately, as a congregation, as a, as a body of God's holy people. So if the character and the conduct described in verses 12-14 through 14 are to be displayed in each of us, then our life together must support this radical new way of being and living. And this is where, again, we're right back to there is no Lone Ranger Christianity. And we can't live life in a church standing 15 feet from each other. We have to get into each other's lives. Sometimes if you want the food to taste good you got to get in the kitchen yourself. And it's no offense to my wife. Uh, she's a good cook. Uh, you can laugh at that. That would to be funny. But that was a metaphor, not a representation of my home. That's what I meant to say, okay? Uh, let me, I tell you what, so I don't get in trouble here, and I don't want to keep digging a hole. Let's go to my realm of life. Uh, if you want what's on the grill... To taste good, men, sometimes you got to get in front of the grill, right? Does that make sense? You all, you all grill, don't you? You're from the south. Barbecue, right? Right. You smoke everything. And I don't mean, you know, like that, right? Right. <laughs> when I was in seminary, I, I, I got into smoking food. And so I would be around seminary, this is a rabbit trail, I'm sorry, but I, 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 was, I was, would walk around and, and they'd be like, well, what do you like to do for fun? I like to smoke things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that always got their heads turned. And, and I didn't realize it was happening until God woke me up and said, you probably should uh, define that a little more clearly. I smoke foods uh, and you can't, well, anyways, even that could be <laughs> mistrued, sorry. Uh, so they tell me. Right? Okay. So, we must live out this faith corporately as a body. doesn't mean you're going to be close and into everybody's lives, particularly as our churches grow and so on and so forth, but we have to be close to people. We have to have people close to us to live this out. So, corporately, the peace of Christ must rule in our hearts. Is what Paul tells us. I'm convinced, okay, I'm convinced that what we're getting ready to talk about is the problem with most of our churches today. Why we hear of fighting inside of bodies going on. Worship wars over stupid music styles and garbage like that. I'm convinced that what we're going to talk about, this doesn't happen. And that's the result that we see. First of all, the peace of Christ must rule in our hearts. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, verse 15, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is not to be reduced to merely a subjective emotional state. That's not what Paul's talking about with let the peace, just let peace flow in our hearts. Is that what Paul's talking about? No. It is the peace which Christ has won for us by the blood of the cross. That is the peace. If we understand we were enemies of God, and He was righteous, we were enemies, that's a war between those two. And Christ on the cross brought peace between you and God. And Paul is saying, let that peace that was won on the cross, let that peace rule in our hearts. This is a cosmic scope Here, where Christ has made peace for us with God. And yet it is a a gift from God, our Father, particularly giving to believers in Christ. This peace accounts for the fact that we are no longer enemies of God. But we are now God's chosen ones who have been loved. Going on to verse 15. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What does he mean by rule? The peace of Christ is the determining factor in community life. This peace is now to rule in the body of believers. This peace is to determine our relationships with one another. Together, believers are to have a deep awareness of the peace with God that has been given to each of us. We are to see each other, think of each other, speak and treat each other conscious of this extraordinary peace. Can you imagine how this changes your perspective when you walk up to that brother or sister whom you might have issues with or whom you might love dearly and the peace and you walk up to them in the back of your mind you know and realize daily the peace that God has made between you and Him through the cross and the peace that God has made between that person and God. And you let that rule your relationship. Always remember, what has God done in their lives? What has God done in my life? We let this peace. The peace is uh, to be the decisive factor in our relationships with one another. Verse 15 going on, He says, rule in your hearts. To be sure that this ruling is a deep reality, Christ's peace is to be the controlling reality in our hearts this peace in our lives is to make such a difference in our inner being that our relationships between believers are controlled by that peace that's ruling in our hearts. You see our churches begin to fight inwardly. There is no peace. Because they have lost sight of the peace that was won for them. Next, he says in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Not because of our achievements, but because we were called to this one body. Again, it's God's doing. We were called to this one body. Colossians 1, if you look a little bit earlier in Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14, he says, He, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, the kingdom of Christ is the realm where sins are forgiven, and this is the peace of Christ that we have. Going on in verse 15, He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, be thankful. Although this call has come to each individual believer, the same gospel call has drawn believers together to one body, to one another. The assembly of believers, if you think about this, where, where Paul would be writing here, he would have been writing to Philemon's home in which the church in Colossae met. This is the primary idea that that local body would be drawn together by the gospel. And it's in this body where compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love can be expressed in real and practical ways. You can't do that 15 feet from each other. You have to be holding hands. You have to know what's going on in their life. We can't stand this far away. We have to be close. Go to verse 15. He says, and be thankful. Why are we thankful? We are thankful because we did not achieve anything by our doing, but instead we were called. We were called. These words are crucial. How, How could it be otherwise? We were called. He tells us to be thankful. How could we be anything other than thankful? How dare we begin to think that we somehow deserve what God has done and continues to do in our lives? We spit on the cross when we do that. Paul will continue this thankfulness as he has been in this theme of thankfulness since even the very beginning of this letter. It's a very prominent aspect of the verse of Colossians he's telling how, how he's thankful for what God has done in the Colossians life. He says that in verse one, uh, chapter one verse three, and he also prayed that the Colossians would share in this thankfulness in verse 12 of chapter one. This is, this is an important summary of the purpose of this letter as Pauls encouraging them to be thankful, Paul exhorted them to abound in thanksgiving. And because we are so wealthy in this country, we begin to be so unthankful for what we have. And not just what we have, but what God has done. And that being primary. So, now Paul is saying it's clear that your life is to be characterized by thankfulness. And this to be lived out in your life together. So corporately, the peace of Christ must rule in our hearts. And secondly, the word of Christ must be the defining characteristic of the body. So again, why do we see this junk going on in churches? And in bodies, big and small? because they've lost sight of the peace that Christ has won for them. And the Word is not the defining characteristic of the body. Something else has risen to be more important than the Word of God. Again, I I know it's not in every case. But it's very, very common. The Word of God. Something else. Music's become more important. Whatever. Something else has become more important. Verse 16. He says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse sixteen echoes the call of verse fifteen, and it provides further explanation for us. Here's a question: How are believers to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts, so that the body of Christ, the body of God's chosen people, enjoys peace and thankfulness? How? We do that by letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Word of Christ here probably means, I'm convinced it means the Word about Christ. The Word about Christ. So the Word about Christ, let that dwell in you richly. I think Paul is giving us here, he's he's saying, Learn Jesus. Learn the Word about Christ. We, the call to follow Jesus is the call to learn God. To know Him. To know the Word about Him in which He has chosen to reveal Himself. The Word of Christ is the means by which the peace of Christ will rule in the hearts of the believers. If we want the peace to rule, then we have to know the Word of God and dwell in the Word of God. The Word must dwell in you deeply as an individual and as a body. Let me ask you a question. Have you been a part of a church or around an individual where there is no peace? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Where there is no thankfulness? Anybody? Yeah. It is simply this. The Word is not dwelling deeply in them. Colossians 3.16, he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think this this image is unusual, but but it's very, very vivid. So the Word is to live among them lavishly. So the Word should be among us deeply and around us and surround us. We should be diving into the Word. The Word is the is to dominate their life together, shaping and directing their minds and hearts. The same thing is true for us. The Word should be dominating our life, shaping and directing our minds and hearts. The Word of Christ is to be extravagantly spoken and heard among the people. That's what Paul's telling the Colossians. Same thing for us. Churches today that take this call seriously, ensure that time and effort is given to taking in and, re- and learning the message about Jesus from the Bible. And this, looks, this is going to look different in different cultures. It doesn't mean that you have to preach for an hour or the Word of God's not important. It's not, it's not what Paul is saying. Matter of fact, Paul does not give any reference here to specific ways of speaking the Word. And it would be foolish of us to assume that Paul is only talking about the preaching of God's Word. The proclamation of the Word. Paul's not talking about that here. Paul's primarily talking about us speaking the Word to each other. In life, as we live out the Gospel, we're speaking the Word to each other. Paul is not talking about preaching only. So the word, does it dominate your life? Does it dominate your conversations? It doesn't mean you have theological discussions every other time. But it means, are you speaking the word to that brother who's in need? Are you speaking the word to that brother who is doing well and maybe just needs some encouragement? Are you speaking the word to each other? The word must flow from your life to others in the body from your life to others in the body. Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as preachers teach and admonish all the people in the church in all wisdom. Is that what Paul says? We can't depend on the preacher to fulfill this. This has to be done. He's telling teaching and admonishing one another In all wisdom. This is each other doing this to each other in all wisdom. This is, again, a clear echo of chapter 1, verse 28. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul is telling this is our goal to teach everything with all wisdom. And we may present everyone mature. And then later he says, teach each other. To admonish each other. You know what that assumes? That assumes you know the word. That you're growing in your knowledge of the word. So just as Christ is to be proclaimed among the nations with effort and energy, so the word about Him is to be spoken extravagantly among us as believers to each other. Often this will look like addressing those who are falling or failing to put to death what is earthly or failing to put on the Christ-like behaviors. Often that's what this looks like for us, is speaking the word when they have fallen or are failing to do it, God. This kind of conversations are to be a big part of the life of those who have been called into the fellowship of Christian believers. We are speaking the word to each other. Um, Colossians 3.16 going on, he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The Psalms, probably re- a reference to the Old Testament Psalms, hymns, probably referring especially to the songs of praise to God and songs, songs about spiritual things, probably songs about Christ. In summary, though, these songs are means of the believers teaching and admonishing each other. Our music and our worship should take great instruction from this passage. And, and let me say, as I've worked through this passage, you know, they're... There are things that, as a church, we're not perfect at. Uh, and, and your church is probably not perfect at. And, and I think this is one of those aspects where we have to learn something from this. And, and if you look at the next part of that verse, he says, With thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's, I think there's a little bit we can dig into here, but I, we're just going to kind of brush through this real quick. I don't think Paul is setting the precedent here for all of our worship and what it should all look like, but there should be a component in our worship, our singing, where we are admonishing each other with the Word while we are worshiping God with thankfulness in our hearts. So when we typically think of worship, we think of typically it's all vertical Now, yes, we're not worshiping each other. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Our worship, though, is the thankfulness on the inside to God. And there's a component of us teaching and admonishing each other in the Word through our singing. And I hope that maybe challenges some of you to think think maybe a little differently again i don't think paul is saying that all of our worship has to look that way but there's a component in which the body should be admonishing and teaching each other through singing and we have lots to learn from these verses lastly as a body we must have a disposition of thankfulness a disposition of thankfulness. Whatever you do, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, give me thanks to God the Father through Him. So here the scope of the Christian life is indicated. Whatever you do or say, everything, there is no part of your life that is not changed by your having died with Christ and having been raised with Him. There's no part of your life. Everything. The Christian life cannot be merely inward and private. It must be outward and public as well. The Lord of the Christian life is emphasized. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, it's a common phrase in the Old Testament. Why do you think about this? In the name of the Lord. Common phrase in the Old Testament. And it is astonishing that Paul could extend this phrase to in the name of the Lord Jesus. Don't miss that. This is what doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus means. If you look at chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. It is to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lastly, we see that the manner of the Christ, the manner of the christian life is under of yeah the christian life is underlined again giving thanks to god the father through him again there's a clear echo of this idea of thanksgiving in the body to give thanks to god the father through the lord jesus christ means that he is the one who has made it possible for us to give thanks to God. Don't miss that. We give thanks to God not because we are good people or are good Christians. We give thanks to God because we are no longer enemies of God who have been made at peace with God through Christ on the cross. We are able now to have thankful hearts towards the God who has been so gracious to us. Amen? Amen. So let's go back to this idea of achievement. The repeated refrain of thankfulness gives us the key, I think, to the alternative to achievement thinking as Christians. The Christian life, I think, can be compared to marriage. Follow me here. We think of marriage in achievement terms. You must work at it, and you will succeed or you will fail. The weakness of such marriages is the weakness of the persons involved. The Bible teaches us though that God joins a man and a woman in marriage. God unites them. Their unity is given by God. It is a gift. The call though is to make the most of it, to live it out, to live up to what God has given that flows out of the unity that God has given. The strength of such marriages is in what God has given. So just so, the Christian life is to find its strength in thankfulness to God for what He has done and given. It is not a matter of achievement. So let me ask you a question one more time. How would you rate your Christian life? How would you rate your Christian life? I would say this, Mine is awesome and great because he is greatly working in me. I am thankful for his work in my life. It is not because of anything that I have done. It is because of everything that he has done, and I am thankful for that. Are you thankful for the work that God has done? Is doing and will do in your life, whether you're a teenager or you're in in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever it is. Are you thankful for what God has done? And I'm not talking about these material givings and blessings that we live in and miss, what Christ did on the cross. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful that you're no longer an enemy of God, but you can live in peace and harmony? with God, that you can be thankful to. Are you thankful that you can be thankful because someone paid the price so that you could be thankful? And do we let these things, the Word and the peace of God, do we let that dwell richly in our bodies? As we travel home in a big motor coach, are we going to speak the Word of God to each other? As we serve this week together, Mississippi, All right, Are we going to let the Word of God dwell richly among us? Are we, are we going to be concerned with speaking the Word to each other? Again, this assumes that we know and are growing in our knowing of the Word. And Renovation Church, are we going to lavish each other with the Word of God? Are we going to do those things? Paul tells us it's not based upon our achievements. Our thankfulness is based upon God's achievement, God's plan. We have a new identity. Out of that flows character, which out of that flows conduct, and then all that's lived out in the body. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's ask God. Let's let's repent of finding our identity in the wrong things, Let's repent of not being thankful. Let's repent of our beginning to think that we somehow deserve the love that God has lavished upon us. Let's repent of those things. That's where this life, that's that's putting off these old things. It begins with repentance, not with just doing more good things. Let's do those things. Let's repent and let's ask God his Word would dwell richly in us and the peace of Christ would consume us. Let's do that. Let's pray uh, together. We'll have a time of singing and reflection and then we'll be dismissed. Father God, You are gracious even in this moment. Father, You are gracious in revealing to some of us or even all of us the fact that we have sins to repent of. You could just let us live in the sins of our lives just like you could have let Adam and Eve live in their sinless or in their sinful state forever. But instead, your act of penalty in the death was actually an act of grace. Because they wouldn't have to stand in that sinful state forever. And God, even in the midst of all of that, you provide a glimpse of the cross of what was to come. And Father, let us not forget what you did for us on the cross. Let us be reminded every day, every conversation, that what you have done to glorify Yourself and the cross and the benefits that we receive from that and let us recognize that same truth in the brother or sister that we speak to and let us recognize that same truth in the lost person that we speak to, that they have not yet experienced the grace of God and the cross of Christ. Father, as we sing, let this be a time of reflecting Time that we reflect on what you have done in our lives, Let's solidify these truths in our hearts, and Father, um, it's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all stand.